Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Plenty of ways to access the program. 8.55 on your analogue. 3CR on digital, stream in podcast via 3cr.org.au, your choice, but I hope you find the program informative and that's what it's all about. And today on Tuesday Home Time, part one of a two-part interview with Jaffa M. Ramini, Palestinian writer and political analyst, now living in Western Australia. Jaffa was five years old when the Haganah militia burst into his family home in Janine in 1948. 75 years later, he still remembers vividly. The National Mounted Police, who played a leading role in conflicts on the Australian frontier, they're called police, but in reality, extermination squads employed by colonial and later Australian government. I'll be speaking with Professor Peter Stanley. Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees hasn't been about for a while. He's been visiting in both Britain and Norway and he'll be talking about what he believes are the stark differences between the two societies. His former home in England and his wife's in Norway. The South Australia government says that the Commonwealth needs to go back to the drawing board with plans for a new nuclear dump and put all options on the table. This follows the federal court's ruling against a dump near Kimber in South Australia. Dr Margie Beavis from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War believes the answer is scrap the whole idea and leave the waste where it is. And we'll be hearing about her reasons why. But we need a bit of satire on the program as well. And who else to deliver it but Mr Kevin Healy. And this is His Week That Was. A week, Jane, listener, when, our first, we've got to say it, bloody Nigeria. Can't it be satisfied that oil makes it one of the richest countries in the world, or at least satisfied that it makes shell out your wealth and the great fossil behemoths, the richest behemoths in the world, and also on shell out your wealth, Ed Al's behalf, knows how to handle the odd million or several protester who reckon none of the wealth goes to the people. All they end up with is poverty and the destruction of their environment. In some parts of the world, it's called lynching. In Nigeria, it's called the law. So how dare they? Worse, mostly blacks beating mostly whites. It's contrary to the natural order. Sorry, listen, I just had to get that disaster off my white as white chest. But a week when just as the caring business class with enthusiastic acclaim welcomed the appointment of Michelle Bulldust to govern the Reserve Losses Bank, indicating she will be a boon to workers and the poorest of the poor, this week they were far more reserved. No, no, that, that's putting it mildly. Shattered. The end of the world as we know it after the socialist new appointment to chair the Productivity for Profits Commission, bloke called Chris Barrett, real name, a former ambassador in Paris to the OECD and senior economist in the Victorian Public Service. Good capitalist credentials, I hear you say. Well, yes, but 
no. See, he was also an advisor to former socialist big economic guru Wayne Swansong, a red flag to the poor caring business class, because we all recall what a boon Wayne was for the poorest of the poor, how he so threatened the filthiest rich or the filthy rich who somehow survived his copy policies and became filthy richer. For the good of all of us, of course. This new appointment is so dangerous, so threatening to the good of all of us, that the troubler was a capitalist review on behalf of the filthiest rich job of the caring business class, spent many pages declaring the appointment a disaster. One writer questioning whether he, the appointment, the appointee, will have the courage to oppose socialist threats to caring employers while the omniscient political editor Philip the Capitalist Curry alerted us, Chris Barrett comes to the job with fine credentials and glowing endorsements, but his objectivity will be the subject of scrutiny. A big, big but. Uh, there, listeners, socialist connections, agitprop, while the voice of the caring business class editorialised under Productivity Post for Socialist Insider, praising his predecessor, who was appointed by former caring business class, big economic guru, Josh Friedem Icebergs, who, the predecessor, maintained the pro-market approach of the productivity for profits commission. That predecessor, by the way, having worked for caring business class, Polly Nick Minchin, and former Victorian treasurer, Alan Stockdill, whose legacy we all recall as we pay our huge power bills, among other things, but... No problem there about objectivity, a sensible good for all of us appointment. Indeed, the editorial lauded the, the economic reform era of the 80s and 90s that revived Trublawasi prosperity. The ACTU now calls this neoliberalism, in parenthesis, and wants to neuter the body that called out the union's successful push for a return to patent bargaining workplace laws as an anti-competitive drag on productivity. Phew! It's hard to believe, but those bloody evil unions seem to be getting more evil. And how dare they insult the economy with a disgusting pejorative like neoliberalism. So, because we care about the sensitivities of the fragile, caring business class and its media outlet, we will refrain from calling neoliberalism neoliberalism. We'll assuage their concerns by calling it, well, there's heaps of choices. New right economics, smash the workers' nomics, smash the evil unions' nomics, make the poorest of the poor poorer and poorer nomics, make the filthiest rich of the filthy rich filthy richer nomics, destroy public services' nomics, destroy planet Earth nomics. The possibilities are endless and nowhere near as pejorative as the pejorative neoliberalism. As we know, when the proverbial hit the fan over PWC for pricks with confidentiality's little problems like being pricks with confidentiality, it announced it was establishing an internal review led by caring business class heavy Ziggy Switch Nuklieronsky, former tell stray from public interest supremo, and this week it announced Ziggy will report to PWC by mid-August an in-depth coverage of the big... Uh, issues involved, apart, as Pricks with finally released the terms of reference, apart from the tax leak scandal and the firm's past conduct. <laughs> Just when we thought the scandals and their conduct might have been a, a touch relevant to the inquiry. 
uh, seeing this arose out of the scandals in your past conduct, shouldn't they be just a touch relevant? We asked company spokesperson Michael Sleazy III. Of course not. After all, we already know about all that. Why commission a report into what we already know? No, no, this report will take us into the future, into a profitable future. This shows we are looking forward to erecting barriers to ensure this can't happen again. Uh, so you've learned your lesson. Certainly, we will erect barriers to ensure that we don't get sprung next time. Now, I notice the report will go to you. Will, will you make it public? Are you asking us to disregard the report's confidentiality? What, what would that do for our reputation? Oh, sorry, sorry. I hope so. On those socialist threats to the caring business class, to the delicate flower that is the economy, dire warning from our very own big true blue Aussie, BHP, for bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, as its supremo, Gerald Dine on workers' blood slattery, told the US of the UN of the US of the World Chamber of Profits, the socialist crippling same work, same pay threat will cost poor bloody huge $3 billion and jeopardize great national benefits like its Olympic Dam copper, uh, plus a bit of uranium, giant development, would set back the transition from fossils. And we know how that would so upset bloody huge polluter. And, quote, risks exacerbating an unsustainable situation where labor costs would double while productivity plummeted, showing the depths to which the socialists have plummeted. Uh, but Gerald Dine on workers, uh, we asked Gerald Dine on workers' blood, you employ labour hire workers from your own labour hire company. Does this mean you're ripping them off to the tune of $3 billion? Of course not. What it does mean is that the very successful system of labour hire is threatened uh, because you can't rip them off. Look, do you want a great national project to be abandoned? Do, do you oppose the transition from fossils. Uh, sorry, sorry. I hope so. Well, well, you might be. It gets worse. The sundry chambers of profits have warned us socialist threats to make casual workers who are not casual workers not casual workers are dangerous, will cost productivity, flexibility, and jobs growth. Productivity, flexibility, sacrosanct to the caring business class so it can enjoy jobs growth. Although, on the other hand, Michelle Bulldust says we must have thousands and thousands more workers unemployed. They, they need to sort that one out. But the Chamber of Commerce and Industry Profits warned it's all about evil unions, that casual workers are less likely to join a union, see a dangerous socialist plot. And Master Builders Profits Association Supremo Donita warn of disaster are sensibly... We aren't sure what problem the government is trying to solve. Because, she added, as it stands, we have no problem ripping off casual workers. As the filthiest rich of the filthy rich play happy, happy families in a Perth courtroom that had to be adjusted to accommodate the elite of the legal profession, Gina Wronghart, her father's ex-partner, the Right the Prophets family, the Roads to Riches family, hammers the workers Lee Iron, and Gina's happy, happy family, Bianca, John, Gloria and Hope, all suing each other over 
are laying claim to the riches with 12 silks, the most expensive, charging up to 35 grand a day, and a bevy of juniors and the big end of town solicitors rubbing their hands together. It's easy to see who won't be the losers as the happy, happy families battle it out in what is expected to last about four months. And keeping the lawyers happy, the ensuing battle over who'll pay the costs. It's legal heaven, a, a utopian uh, description we wouldn't use to describe happy, happy families Christmas Day at Gina's. On those doing so much for the planet as it celebrates the hottest month on record over ever extremes uh, north, south, east and west, one great contributor to the record would side with profits is threatening to sue long-haired commie greenies who released a stink bomb in its offices, criminal polluters, claiming loss of the um, profits that come from creating climate records. Top marks would side with for sensitivity and relativity. The US of Congress is conducting hearings it claims will confirm the existence of aliens. More than likely, a sighting had travelled the poor towers many years ago from which emerged the greatest alien emerge ever, ever. Or even a sighting down under as a zombie figure emerged from a primeval swamp, like, like you know. And we know the Republican rump in Congress is questioning flogging those 38 mil a day nuclear train killers to Trublawazi, but two establishment journos assured the Radio National Brecky person Friday it's just grandstanding, there's no problem, the deal will go through. And they all breathed a sigh of relief. And I thought, I'm sure all of us who heard it thought, for once, let's back the Republican rump. Numerous motions are lining up for the Socialist Party conference opposing the Forkers deal, suggesting we may be a little too close to the US of and offering alternative ways to spend that 38 mil a day that don't involve killing people, where we are told the left, in parentheses, has the numbers for the first time in eons, and to show the immeasurable value of all the infighting it takes to get those numbers, the left has ensured the anti-Forkers motions will be defeated to avoid embarrassing the government and its out-of-control left big supremo Anthony Albinguzi. But, one minister explained, they will allow a democratic debate and ensure the democratic result. Or, as Anthony said some weeks ago, the Socialist Party is a democratic party, and that's why he would totally ignore the democratic result if by some accident the motions get through. As real-life train-killer games showed yet again the train-killing means, train-killing, our close, close, close relationship with the U.S. of was typified by U.S. of Secretary for Being Offensive and Train-Killing Lloyd Austin, our pocket, who described the relationship as, a true blue was he is on side with us. See a good, loyal lackey. And finally, as the sundry ministers and secretaries for war and going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect got together to talk a bit of train killing and slaughter, the secretary for U.S. of World State, blank in the head, said Trubler was he must understand the sensitivities of the U.S. of over Julian Assange. You must understand, he explained, we are sensitive to our war crimes being exposed. Good afternoon. And to hear more of Kevin Healy tomorrow morning at nine o'clock, it's City Limits.
We're not meant to have anything nuclear in our country. It's really important and urgent that, that Australia gets serious about nuclear disarmament. Well, nobody anywhere on the planet has figured out how to deal with highly radioactive waste. Most of those who've managed nuclear weapons consider this to be the most dangerous time that we've ever lived in, with the danger of nuclear war at unprecedented levels. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Hiroshima Day Rally for Peace and Against Nuclear Submarines, AUKUS and War. Nationwide commemorations and events will be held on the 78th anniversary of the US dropping nuclear bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Join millions of people across the world in sending a powerful message, never again. On Sunday 6th of August at 1pm at the State Library of Victoria. For more information, you can visit the Facebook page No AUKUS Coalition Vic a 3CR supporter. We read many accounts of and speak with descendants of the Nakba in 1948 in Palestine. Today, the memories of a child of five when he and his family had to flee the terror of the Haganah militia. And that child is Palestinian writer and political analyst Rafa M. Ramini. Born in Jenin, lived in London for 53 years and now in Fremantle, Western Australia. Jaffa, 75 years ago, the life of you and your family living in Jenin came to a terrifying end. You were just five years old. What can you remember? Thank you for asking this question, Jan. I remember it as if it were yesterday. As you said, I was only five. We woke up to a beautiful May day in Palestine uh, to see uh, aircraft flying overhead and dropping leaflets upon us like confetti, uh, not to hail a wedding or a circumcision or or uh, gaiety, it was to tell us die or leave. Uh, and they surrounded Jenin, the Haganah Zionist forces, surrounded Jenin from east, west, and north, and left us the corridor going south to leave through it. And I remember being carried on the shoulders of my late brother, Mustafa, who was 15 years my senior, tricking through the mountains surrounding Jenin, trying to find refuge with friends and family who lived in villages surrounding Jenin. And we arrived in a village called Arraba. And on the way, I could hear the thuds of mortar shells, the zim of aircraft, the click, click, click of machine guns. We had to hide in a, into a cave. And a boy who was sitting next to me in the cave, and as it happens, he was my namesake. His name was Jafar as well. Got the bullet through his eye, went through the back of his head, 
And miraculously, this boy survived, but thousands of others didn't, and hundreds of thousands lost their homes. Israel pushed out 800,000 Palestinians in methodic ethnic cleansing and theft of land. What did your family leave behind? We left our home, a home that was built in 1907 in Jenin, uh, and all our belongings, we came out with meager belongings and obviously the key to the house. And we went and we stayed in Arraba from May until about November, i.e. six months, living with, with friends and family. And when the Iraqi forces liberated Jenin, we came back. Uh, to find a horrifying scene, and I remember it, as I said, as if it were yesterday. Our beautiful home, two-story house, stone-built, on the river in Jenin, with a nice, beautiful garden. The garden was teeming with people. And, and I asked my mom, I said, Mama, who are all these people? She was an extremely kind and holy woman, and she said, darling, those are our guests. They are brothers and sisters who came from the villages surrounding Haifa, Nazareth, and Jaffa because obviously the Haganah pushed them out. We went into the house and there was chaos. And that is how the Jenin, the infamous Jenin refugee camp came to, to being. These people came from the 58-plus villages in the conurbation of Jenin that the Haganah forces ethnically cleansed and buried without trace. And where are they to go? So the UN put uh, tents for them in the railway station in Jenin just to house them because the winter was coming. And uh, when we went back to school the year after, I was six, Normally, the class will be about 30, 35, maximum 40 pupils. We had 90 and 100 because these kids had to be educated. And they were in rags without shoes. So the people of Jenin who were able to, we shared our clothes with them. We showed our food until the UNRWA, which is the United Nations World Refugee Agency, started to distribute food and clothing and blankets for them, and that is the history. The Jenin camp is still there, and as we all know, attacked by Israeli occupation forces periodically. What did you learn about your extended family? Well, my extended family were the, myself and my late brother and seven sisters. That's because my dad died when I was four months old. As per the name Ramini, we hail from a village near Tul Karim, which carries the family name Ramin, thus the name Al Ramini. All my sisters at that time, all of them older than me, I was the youngest in the family, were actually working as teachers, social services guides showing the women how to look after their children, how to keep their house clean, and, and teaching in the refugee camps. One of those refugee camps near Tul Karim is being attacked. It's called Nur Shamp, as I'm talking to you. 
we are a family of education. Uh, my sisters, all of them went into education, not only in Palestine, but in the Arabian Gulf, especially in Kuwait. One of my sisters who's still alive, out of the seven sisters, two are still alive and living in Amman, Jordan. She owned three schools in Kuwait, and she has 6,000 Palestinian children learning in those schools. Can I take you back to something you've written about the ethnic cleansing and of Christians, Muslims from Palestine, premeditated, active land theft, genocide and ethnic cleansing. We must do everything to ensure the Palestinians never do come back to their home. The old will die and the young will forget. Well, you certainly didn't forget. This infamous quote by none other than Mr. Ben-Gurion himself, considered to be the founding father of Israel. It, it was all pre-planned. I mean, Ben-Gurion and his clique at that time established the D plan, which the Dalit plan, which was totally about the ethnic cleansing of the, of the Palestinian towns and villages by all means possible. And making sure that the Palestinians never, never return. Though when they entered the, the UN, that was one of the provisos, Resolution 194, that they should guarantee the return of all Palestinians who wish to return and compensate the others who lost property, who do not want to return. But this is the way they are, and it's all very clearly illustrated by a book called The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, written by none other than Professor Elan Pate, who is a Jewish-Israeli historian born in Haifa. And when he grew up and he, he went to university and he was doing his thesis at Haifa University, he discovered what they were sold was a lie and that they actually intended to have the whole land mass of Palestine, preferably without any Palestinians in it. It is a book that every interested party, including Jewish people, because I know there are a lot of Jews who do not prescribe to the Zionist doctrine. They should read this book. It's called The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. Professor Alain Pepe wrote another book called The Ten Myths About Israel. That is required reading as well by anybody, any student of history or human rights, especially if they are Jewish, to see the myths and the fabrications that the Zionist movement shoved down their throats. We're all aware of the importance to Palestinians of education. Where did you go to further your education? I left Jenin in 1962. I was 19 years old. And the only gateway to us was, uh, at that time, to go to the Arab countries around us who will afford us a visa to go. The, the one country that we did not need a visa to go to and work was Kuwait. And I said to my mom, I would like to go to, to study in, in, in England or in the United States of America. And uh, she refused. She said, as, as I said, I, I was the youngest of the family uh, and very close to her heart. 
and she said you can go to any Arab country but not to, to the West because if you go you will meet the Western girl and I'll lose you and he'll never come back. It proved to be prophetic because after working in Kuwait for one and a half years I went to Saudi Arabia uh, and worked there for another four years uh, and then after the Six Day War when I saw Israeli airplanes flying over Jeddah and the Red Sea to bomb Egypt and the anti-aircraft of the Saudi Air Force, obviously manned by the British, were silent. I just decided that's not for me. I'm going to go and I want to go to England because that's where our troubles all started by the Balfour Declaration in 1917. And I wrote to a few colleges and universities, and I was accepted by City of London College, which is now City University, because I was a mature student. I was 26 when I arrived in, in London in May of 1969. And I discovered going to the school, because it was a special course, English, it was a sandwich course, English plus business studies, uh, designed for people who are already in business, which I was. And I discovered how there is a total uh, taboo to discuss Palestine, as you may know and your listeners, a part of business studies is communication, and I want to talk about Palestine. And I went, went all around looking for a map to say Palestine, not the British mandate of Palestine, not, not not of those creations of Jesuit or French priests who visited the Levant in early times, but simply to say Palestine. And then I started to meet other Palestinians in colleges and universities. When I finished my studies, my mom said, don't come back, because obviously we were already under occupation in the West Bank. What I was saying and doing did not please either side, the Arabs or the Israelis. So I decided to stay, and I stayed, and then I met my wife, Sandra, who was born in Australia, but she was working for the BBC in London, then Thames Television in London. She's a journalist and an author. She was interested in the Palestinian cause after a journalistic visit to Lebanon. Uh, in 1968, and she saw the refugee camps for the first time as an Australian girl who knew nothing about Palestine, and she was shocked, and it turned her life. And when she came back, she was invited by many an Arab organization or a Palestinian do as somebody who's in the media and sympathetic to our cause. And I met her out of all places at the birthday party of King Hassan of Morocco. Uh, and she was there as a journalist, and I was invited there as an Arab. And of course, being not married, I couldn't take a girlfriend with me. I went to my own, as a Muslim do. And she was there, and we met. And after that, 1970, the Black September happened. I don't know if your listeners are aware of this or familiar with it. Uh, it's when some factions of the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, 
hijacked three air aeroplanes, took them to the Dawson Field in Jordan, emptied all the passengers, uh, and blew them up just to say, look, we're here, we exist, stop ignoring us. And that was our first actual international violence, if you like, act that we, the Palestinian undertook, just to draw attention. And Sandra called me and said, would you like to come and speak uh, because you speak good English and you look good and people will relate to you. And I declined. I said I couldn't do it for the reasons I just stipulated, that what I would say will not please either side. And I have a family that lives under occupation in Jenin and various parts of the West Bank. And I have family that lives in the Gulf and Saudi Arabia and have visited, and they'll be settled. But I recommended a dear friend who is still alive and, and kicking, a Palestinian lady, Dr. Rada Al-Karmi, a very well-known person. She's a medical doctor, but she devoted her, all her life to the Palestinian cause, and she wrote few books, uh, and there is a history. Can I take you back to what you said a few moments ago about the Balfour Declaration? When did you first learn of what that declaration well, meant? Well, every Palestinian since 1917 knows and lives by the effects of that disgusting letter that was written by Lord Balfour to his friend Lord Rothschild promising them a homeland in Palestine, and we learn about it, of course, from Ben Duvar, the family, my mother, my uncles, my neighbors. Uh, and when we, you go to school, you learn in school, and then it's everyday life. The effects are there. You see, even if you're not under occupation, uh, which we were not between 1950 and 1967, you could see the kibbutz and the settlements across the line from Jenin. And the activities of the settlers who have nothing to do with the land, have no connection with the land. And this is one of those atrocities that Britain had no call to make. They did not own the land. They did not have deeds to the land in 1917. They were not even mandated by the United Nations or the League of Nations at that time to govern over Palestine. Yet they have the audacity to promise this land, our land, to another people. And of course, every year that goes by, we discover the double standard and the treachery of the British, not to just towards us, the Palestinians, and many people around the world. And the declaration, which promised the land as a homeland for the Jews, I mean, I, I would like to emphasize the word homeland as opposed to a state though that's what the Zionist movement has in, in mind since Herzl wrote his book, The Stats. And there was a proviso in, in that declaration, which, which reads as follows. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of the existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. I mean, the non-Jewish communities in Palestine in 1917 was 90% of the people, both Muslims and Christians. Yet, of course, 
the Jewish agency and the Zionist movement took it as a gift and forgot the proviso like they did forget the proviso later on when they declared the state of Israel that they should allow the Palestinian refugees to come back and nobody bats an eyelid. Everybody is cowed, everybody is worried, and everybody who opens her or his mouth to mention the word Jew or Jewish is labeled as anti-Semite, so people are frightened. All I've said so far, I quoted Jewish writers, Jewish historians, Jewish books. At the risk of sounding a bit cliche, I promise I have many, many a Jewish friend, not just an acquaintance, a Jewish friend through 53 years living in London and now three years here. One of my closest, closest friends is a Jewish Israeli-born man. And this is a myth. Uh, some of the myths that Alain Pape said in his book, The Ten Myths About Israel, uh, is that we, the Arabs and the Jews, have been at each other's throats for centuries. That's a lie. And I'm going to stick my neck out now and say that in the history of the Jews who were persecuted in Western Christian countries and cultures, they had only respite and respect and lived a fulfilled life only under Islamic countries. All other countries through history persecuted them and kicked them out. Not us, the Palestinians, not us, the Arabs. And yet they say we've been at each other's throats for centuries. That is a lie. Another myth that Palestine was terra malis. They know people. Another myth. And that Palestine, they made the desert bloom. Rubbish. They came to a country that was developed, civilized, functioning, agriculture, industry, airline, trains running from Haifa to Beirut and Cairo and Damascus and everywhere. And they say, we do not exist because it serves their people. And what, purpose. And what I find amazing that people are willing to believe this myth. And that was the first part of a two-part interview with Palestinian writer and political analyst Jafar M. Ramini. Part two on the program next week. Because the Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight, because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom. Everybody should be standing here today saying, Free Palestine. Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Bumbanja Nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty. We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. Fears are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes Fafias, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. 
from the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. We're your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Native Mounted Police took a leading part in conflict on the Australian frontier. As police, they were supposedly eligible to be included in the Australian War Memorial. Why not? They acted as a mercenary cavalry, Australia's own extermination squads. That's the first paragraph in an article published in Pearl's Irritations by Professor Peter Stanley. And Peter, just before we begin... What began and continues your long involvement with the Australian War Memorial? I worked at the Australian War Memorial for 27 years, so it was a, a big part of my career as an historian. I, I learned to be a historian while I was at the memorial. I'm a military historian, basically, and the memorial is the single largest institution which is concerned with Australian military history, and it's one of the main ways that, it, that Australians learn about military history. So I've always been interested in the way, and in fact concerned about the way, the memorial conducts itself in informing and helping Australians to understand their military past. So that explains why, even though I haven't worked at the memorial since 2007, I'm still very interested as a member of the, the Heritage Guardians group to try and keep the war memorial honest. So did you have those concerns early on or those concerns more lately? On frontier conflict, for example, um, I started in 1980, and in 1981, a year later, I gave a paper at a conference that the War Memorial organised, an annual series of conferences, in which I argued that frontier war should be considered as part of Australia's military history, which, which it really wasn't at the time. Australia's military history in the, by the 1980s was basically about overseas conflicts, and frontier conflict hadn't even been named. I had those sort of concerns at the start, and I, but I became a, a part of the memorial's uh, authority. You know, I became its principal historian. So I was and am an deeply implicated in the way the memorial uh, went about doing its job. Since I've left, though, I've been able to express my own views. Uh, after I left, I went to the National Museum, and there I made some criticisms of the memorial, got me into bad odour with the memorial. And then, especially when I became an academic in 2013, and I'm now retired, um, I was able to speak my mind fully. And in fact, the memorial deserved criticism much more in, the, in recent years than it did uh, even 10 years ago, in that um, the memorials are now being ruined, vandalised by a massive, unnecessary and costly uh, redevelopment. And I'm being very critical of that. Now, onto the native mounted police used in Australia. Were they modelled on similar mercenaries in other colonised countries in those early years? I don't know if they were formally modelled on them, but they certainly resembled the way in which the British Empire went about policing itself. So if you look at everything from Ireland, where they introduced a sort of paramilitary uh, Royal Irish Constabulary, uh, or the South African frontier, where the Natal native contingent operated. If you look at India, where there were military police units uh, mounted and, and on foot, it's the sort of thing that you do when you've got a big... Uh, empire, you recruit 
the British Empire was too big for the British Army to police it effectively. And so virtually everywhere, uh, native mercenaries were recruited, usually not from the place where they operated. So in the Australian setting, typically they would recruit men, Aborigines, from New South Wales and, and Victoria, and they would go to Queensland. And in Queensland, they would be New South Wales Aborigines, so that, so that they weren't able to even speak the same language as the people that they were operating against. And that's exactly what happened on, in, say, India. In India, the Indian Army had uh, all sorts of different units of different ethnicities, but they, if they operated against uh, rebellion or unrest, they typically didn't operate against people who spoke the same language as them. So in lots of ways, the Native Mounted Police were just the Australian equivalent of comparable units in other parts of the British Empire. Now, you call them mercenary cavalry. Australian yeah. War Memorial insists they police. Who's right and who's wrong? Well, this is the thing. The, the, the memorial's got a long track record in what I call legalism. So, for example, the Memorial Act says that it, it's empowered to present the history of military units raised in Australia. And it's always taken that to mean, from 1980, it's taken that to mean the colonial forces that were raised in the different colonies, and then the national force, the, the Australian, which became eventually the Australian Defence Force. No question, that's part of Australia's military history. It's the bulk of Australia's military history. Now, when it's pointed out to them that the, the war against Aborigines was prosecuted by civilians, many squatters and, and convicts and, and uh, stockmen would conduct informal uh, massacres, raids, attacks, drives. The memorial says, but they're not soldiers, so they don't count. And when you say, well, yeah, but the military police operated, uh, they'll say, oh, they weren't Australians. Yeah, but they were, the British military police was raised in Sydney in 1825. It was a unit raised in Australia. Memorial's known this for years, but it, it basically takes a very legalistic view. Now, when it comes to the native mounted police, they, if you look at photographs of them, they look exactly like the cavalry that, that operated in, on the American frontiers. Blue coats, white trousers, breeches, little caps, swords, carbines, pistols, and they operated like cavalry. They were called native mounted police. So you might so again, the legalistic view says, oh, but these weren't soldiers, they were police. Well, yeah, they may have been called soldiers, they may have been called police, but they acted like soldiers. Typically, they operated in small troops or patrols of you know, a dozen men under a white sergeant or even an officer, and they would basically round up and, as they said, disperse Aborigines, the, the um, European settlers, squatters, landholders, thought were getting in the way. So you either take a legalistic view and say, oh, I'm sorry, the Act says that they can't be, we can't deal with police. Or you take a realistic and actual view and say, well, whatever these people were called, they were fighting the war. And the, the memorial's hypocrisy on this is exposed by the fact that if you go into its peacekeeping galleries now, you see rightly that it deals with the Australian Federal Police in places like Cyprus and the Solomon Islands, where police have become one of the main agents by which Australia influences peacekeeping in, in our region and indeed in, in, in other regions, in the Mediterranean. How come then it's acceptable to present the story of Australian police in the 20th century and the 21st century, but somehow police in the 19th century are, are out of the scope of the act? And they're kind of both ways. 
So it seems to me that if you take a realistic view of the way in which Frontier War was prosecuted, then the Native Mounted Police had a major role in that conflict. Well, take you back to 1850s when they first brought in the Australian Native Police. Before then, they used British soldiers to do the killing and the rounding up. Why did they change? Yes, the, the, uh, the killing and the rounding up happened intermittently. But they, they did use, the, the colonial authorities, mostly in New South Wales, did use red-coated British soldiers to conduct expeditions, that's what they called them, against uh, particularly the recalcitrant Aboriginal resistance. And, and you can trace this uh, in Hawkesbury in the 1790s, Bathurst in the 1820s, the Appen Massacre, the notorious Appen Massacre near Sydney was conducted by British troops in, what was it, 1813? I've forgotten the date. So, yes, yeah, so troops did. Right the way through, as I say, stockmen and, and squatters and, and convicts perpetrated massacres and, and violence. And then in the 1820s, the British formed, they realised that, that in order to get around the Australian bush, especially against people like the Aborigines who knew their country, you weren't going to get very far with infantry who just plodded along. And so they formed mounted police who were British soldiers detached from their regiments, enrolled in the, the, the mounted police, and they were sent off. And they basically pursued and captured bushrangers and other criminals, but they also operated against uh, Aboriginal resistance. And the, the famous example is in 1838, an officer called Major James Nunn took a party, a large party of mounted police, up through the Hunter into the Liverpool Plains and pursued the Camilleroy who were resisting the settlement of the Liverpool Plains. And, and, and it was that group that collided with a, a group of uh, Camilleroy and basically attacked and massacred them, the, the so-called Slaughterhouse Creek Massacre, where there were, I don't know, 50, 60, 70, nobody counted the number of bodies, Aborigines killed, and I think there was, there was a couple of soldiers who were wounded. So that went on. Now, at some point, it became clear that, especially as the frontier began to expand out western, north, northwestern New South Wales, and especially in Queensland, it became clear that you couldn't get enough expensive civilian police to do this job. You needed civilian police, and there were both New South Wales and Queensland colonial police, and they went off and you know, captured bushrangers and robbers and so on, enforced the, the law in the bush. But beyond the frontier, it was the native mounted police, because the native mounted police were very effective. They knew the land, they, they could ride, they could shoot, they were obedient, and they were cheap because they didn't cost nearly as much as colonial police. From the 1850s, the main agents against Aboriginal resistance in Queensland and New South Wales uh, and in, in South Australia and Victoria, they became native mounted police who could do the job very effectively and they could do it very cheaply too. I'm wondering how the authorities managed to get the local Aboriginal people or people from wherever they got them from to go and round up and kill their own people. Well, yeah, and no, I think this is a really important point, Jan, because we don't we don't know. No no individual member of the Native Mounted Police ever left anything in writing. Most of them were illiterate. Um, nobody ever asked them. But it would appear, and, and it seems to be the case, that they didn't regard themselves as one people. But just because they were also black didn't mean that they felt any affinity with the people that they were uh, set to pursue or disperse. And in fact, the, the, the point about language comes through. The people that they were, they were attacking, the people they were rounding up, the people they were killing, didn't speak the same language. They were completely different. 
and they didn't seem to regard them as having any similarity. Hey, they, you know, Victorian blacks would be, would be enrolled, taken to Queensland and told to attack people who they had no idea, they couldn't communicate with. So there doesn't seem to have been any sense of identity with the people they were operating against. Just to dress them up in these uniforms, though, and give them rifles and guns. We're talking about the 1850s onwards. By this time, European settlement has been happening in Australia for 70 years or so. Uh, and Aboriginal people on the frontiers have been introduced to all sorts of Western notions. They've been introduced to clothing, uh, they've been introduced to grog, weapons, horses, and money. And of course, the native bank police weren't paid very much. They were paid a hell of a lot better than most Aboriginal farm workers or, or the, uh, the Aboriginal people who, who hung around stations and farms because their own economy, their own society had been completely disrupted. It's quite easy to find young men who would be quite happy to be paid a small amount of money, get their rations, get tobacco, and be, be given all of the, the things that will come to you if you join the native land of police. You know, we can we can only speculate about the, the other advantages that they enjoyed, but you know, one is is that they had the sexual freedom. They killed Aboriginals, Aboriginal people. It doesn't mean that they, they necessarily you know, just killed them. Well, who knows what, what happened? Because I mean, the problem is that there's very few records. There's been some terrific books written, and they've made a huge amount of out of the existing sources. But there, there are no really intimate sources. There's nothing written from within the Mounted Police except the surviving official records. Well, the disturbing estimate of deaths is, well, it's absolutely appalling, is that they believe that they could have killed up to 70,000 of their own people. Yeah, that's right. That comes out of a, a James Cook study, I think, which looked at the uh, archaeology of native mounted police camps because they, they know where native mounted police troops or patrols were located. They moved around the frontier, but they know more or less where they were. And then making a projection based on the, the operations that they know about. 70,000 is, the, I'd say, the, the, the top estimate. But if it's exaggerated by, by half, you know, to say it's only 35,000. It's a huge number of people over a very long period of time. Uh, and the accounts of individual masters, again, has been some fantastic work being done in Queensland, reconstructing the patterns of masters that occurred. And much of it is speculative because there are no records. It's not like the officers came back from these patrols and said, we, we, we killed 60 people this trip. They didn't do that. But there are, when you start to put together the sources that you do have, because remember, the source that there's newspapers on the Australian frontier too. People are writing to newspapers. People are writing to their families and friends, describing what they've seen. And much of the the sources come from these unofficial sources, which give you insights into what what happened. So if you extrapolate from what you know to what you don't know, you get literally tens of thousands of Aboriginal deaths in these operations. And how long did the authorities continue to use the Native Mounted Police and when did they stop and why? The Queensland Native Police, which was formed as New South Wales Native Mounted Police in 1848 and then continued as Queensland from 1859, it survived until 1905. I think it survived the longest. Western Australia didn't have any Native Mounted Police because it was keen to, to be seen as respectable and was worried about what British opinion would say. 
But in Queensland, the, the effort lasted since, for almost 50 years. And it, it partly ended because the frontier was settled. The, the network of towns and police stations, uh, Aborigines were effectively suppressed. The, the last resist, people say that the frontier was continued until 1928, which is the, the notorious Coniston massacre in, in the Northern Territory. But Coniston's a bit of an outlier. And I'd say that by 1900, the frontier was settled. That is to say, the Aborigines were uh, either d- destroyed or demoralized, uh, dispersed, disrupted, and generally not no longer resisting, so that you didn't need a force of native mounted police because the enemy that they had suppressed for so long was basically had basically disappeared. And and of course it moved down in waves. But the frontier isn't one line, it moves. So that in Queensland, for example, it moves north and it moves west as the the, the second half of the nineteenth century proceeds. And of course, you also get the phenomenon of the gold rush. So you get the Palm River gold rush up in North, North Queensland, where you get tens of uh, thousands of, of gold diggers arriving, and they introduce disruption to the, the local indigenous peoples there. So that the frontier moves and it leapfrogs and it intensifies. And that happened in, in other places too. In Western Australia, for example, the, the last frontier conflict happened up in the, in the Kimberley in the late 1890s. Uh, when Gender Mara was the, the great hero of the indigenous resistance. So, but by then, the rest of Western Australia had pretty much been settled and resistance had been literally wiped out. It's a, a moving frontier. What's the evidence for Victoria and Tasmania? Oh, well, there aren't any native police in Tasmania, of course, because there it was British soldiers assisted by convict auxiliaries and settlers who basically attempted in 1830 to drive the Tasmanian Aborigines down south into the Tasman Peninsula and failed. But then Robinson came along and scooped up the surviving indigenous people and took them off to exile in the Bastrade Islands. Tasmania didn't didn't have a native army police because it didn't have any natives to police. Uh, Victoria had a, a shorter duration because Victoria, remember, was the focus of the 1850s gold rushes which caused massive disruption. So in Victoria, the native mounted police tended to operate for a much shorter period of time. And settlers in Victoria were much more significant. As in Gippsland, for example, the main agent against indigenous resistance in Gippsland was uh, settlers forming into groups, bands, gangs, and not so much the blue-coated mounted police. So it differed in, by different colonies. But Queensland is the main area, and it's indeed been the focus of the main uh, research. You just wonder what happened to these men when they were no longer needed. Yes, and I've got no idea, to be honest. Well, I just don't know. I mean, I, I could speculate. Did they stay in Queensland because that was where, they, where they'd been? Pretty sure that they, they weren't shipped home. One interesting phenomenon with this, which the, the books make clear is that uh, the Aboriginal members of the native mounted police weren't necessarily happy, and there were many instances where they mutinied or they just they just left. Now, whether that's because they were unhappy with the way they were treated or the way that with what they were asked to do or with what they were paid or or whatever, but they there are many instances where men presumably feeling that they, they had become separated from their country and they went back to it. So, yeah, there were instances where a dozen native-landed police in one go would just take off their uniforms and just head off. 
looking to get home. And I, the reason I wrote this piece is because I'm doing the U3A course in Canberra at the moment. The, the excellent lecturer, Peter White, who's taken the course, told us of a terrible story of a, a man from, I think, the Upper Hunter, who was taken into the mountains around the police, went to Queensland, operated there, uh, and then left and fled. And for the rest of his life, every time he saw a policeman, he, he would hide because he thought they would come to get him. So you can see that being part of this force could have completely changed and, and affected them for, for decades. And of course, the communities that these men came from would have a pretty good understanding of what they'd been doing. Probably. They were all, of course, used to the idea of, of if you like, white authority uh, making inroads into their lives because the communities they came from in New South Wales also had native mounted police who made their presence felt. Not on the same scale as Queensland. I mean, I keep emphasising Queensland because Queensland was a very large indigenous population that uh, was confronted by the native mounted police for decades. But yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure this, I mean, the thing was, the native mounted police's operations were an open secret to both white Australians and black Australians. So I'm pretty sure their communities knew what they'd been doing. And the white communities knew what they were doing too, partly because they, they asked for them. They would, they would write to the police and say, can you send a patrol? We've got blacks here who are difficult resisting uppity. Um, I think it was, it's, it's an open secret. The, the records are, are very poor. The official records are poor, but it was an open secret. Well, that brings us to the Australian War Memorial and the reluctance or denial of including these native mounted police in the War Memorial. What excuse or reasons do they give to exclude them? Well, I have to say, the War Memorial is, is showing signs of change. Uh, for decades, uh, people have been lobbying to get the memorial to uh, accept that Australian military history extends beyond overseas wars. Now, it maintained opposition to that for those legalistic reasons that I mentioned, you know, claimed that it wasn't able to under its 1980 Act, uh, and, and that Australian military history starts in 1860 with the detachment of a, a small contingent of Victorian sailors to New Zealand, and then overseas engagements and overseas wars. But in the last few years, there has been signs of change. Brendan Nelson, who's the director of the memorial from 2013 to, what, 2020? Although he claimed that he couldn't do anything about this and there was no way he was going to let the memorial represent frontier conflict. In fact, towards the end of his term, he started to do something on the quiet, and that is he bought very expensive artworks by Indigenous artists depicting frontier massacres. And one of those is on display now, next door to the Gallipoli Gallery. What's that about? And it looks as if, the way I read it, Brendan Nelson actually did believe that frontier concepts was legitimately part of the memorial, and he was making changes. He was preparing the way. And then, of course, the government changed the council composition. The council runs the, uh, the memorial, is responsible for the policy. And the new chairman of council, Kim Beasley, the former uh, leader of the Labour Party, last year said that the memorial would, would give what he called substantial representation to frontier conflict. The War Memorial seems to be in a, in a phase where it's decided that it's got to do something. And so the question isn't now whether it does or whether it doesn't. The question is now whether it does the right thing, whether it uh, pays due regard to the scale of this war or these wars. Because frontier conflict happened from 1788. 
right up to at least 1900. And tens of thousands of Aboriginal people were killed in the course of it. And Aboriginal society was almost destroyed. And in fact, whole peoples were wiped out in the southeast, especially. That's not a small uh, part of Australian military history. If the upper limits of Aboriginal deaths are accepted, it's about 100,000 dead. Now, that's as many as Australia has lost in every other war, uh, every other overseas war. If you take 100,000 is too many, and say it's only 50,000, well, 50,000 is between the number of lives that were lost from Australia in the the Second World War and the First World War. First World War, 60,000, Second World War, 40,000. So we're talking about very large, very long, very costly uh, conflicts. So you'd hope that the memorial now was going to do the right thing and recognize the scale of those conflicts. This is where my concerns continue because we get mixed signals from the War Memorial. Kim Beasley says substantial representation. General Mellick, who's a member of the Memorial Council, basically says he, should, he doesn't mean it should be included at all. So the, the council, although it said one thing, is also undercutting itself. It's going back on its message. My fear is, is that they'll give this conflict, these, these series of wars, which we now tend to call the Australian wars, uh, insufficient recognition. You know, my fear is, is that they'll be given a showcase full of spears in the colonial gallery and, and they'll think they've done their job. Well, I don't think they will have done their job because that would be a travesty. That would be completely inadequate to the scale of this. So I'm hopeful that the Royal Mile will do the right thing and will recognise the scale of it. And let's hope that they, uh, they, they are on the, the right side of history for change. I'm sure, Peter, that people such as yourself will be keeping the pressure up on the memorial. And it's not just people like you who have worked there. It's now a big issue, isn't it? The redevelopment, yes, the is. frontier wars, the Australian wars, it's not like it was a few years ago. No, no, the game has completely changed. I mean, partly because the memorial is now a subject of controversy. There was a time 20 years ago when the memorial was easily the most cherished institution in the country. It was a place where people had odd gripes and niggles about, but basically they would accept that it was doing the right thing. Since Brendan Nelson's term as director, that's completely changed because the massive, uh, the half a billion dollar uh, expansion that Brendan Nelson instigated has basically turned the memorial into a, a source of controversy. And as Australia comes to accept frontier conflict, the memorial needs to keep up with that change in Australian society. And so now it is very much a, a place of contention. And there are people who are and bodies that are keen to keep the memorial on track. So I'm a member of a group called uh, Defending Country, which is creating the website, which collates all the resources about frontier conflict so that you can say to the memorial, look, there's no excuse. You know about these things. Here are lists of all the books. Here are the websites. Here is the evidence. Here are the images. You can't say that you don't know about this anymore. And indeed, there are people on the memorial staff now who are experts in frontier conflicts. You'd hope that their views would be accepted and respected. But no longer can the memorial get away with, with just a narrow view of we're only here to, to pay respect to Anzac. No, the, the, the memorial is there to tell the story of Australia's experience of conflict. And that conflict begins with, with frontier conflict. Thank you so much, Peter. You're very welcome, Jan. Always glad to talk to you.
I've been speaking with Professor Peter Stanley of the University of New South Wales, Canberra. He's one of Australia's most active military historians and the author of 40 books. His Ad Characters jointly won the Prime Minister's Prize for Australian History in 2011. We have a right to be in public space undertaking political activity. That is not something that people should be telling us that we can't do. Multiple actions rolling over months and years and create huge sustained pressure of social change. And what we're seeing around the country right now is increasing repression of protest. Protest works. That's why I think we're seeing it criminalised all over the place. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. Cheryl and Troy have been married for more than 25 years. They spent 10 of those years living on the streets of Melbourne addicted to heroin. In a groundbreaking collaboration, photographer and writer Ali MC conveys the couple's compelling narrative in an audio-visual installation and photographic audiobook. H, A Love Story launches at Richmond Library on Wednesday, August 9 at 6.30pm. Entry is free and all are welcome. H, A Love Story, a project about love, heroin and homelessness on the streets of Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. I hadn't heard from retired academic, author and human rights activist for a while, also the founder of the Sydney Peace Foundation, Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees. But recently found out why he's been travelling between Norway and Britain. And why are these two countries? He's formerly from England and his wife from Norway. Good morning, Stuart, and welcome home. You've written that there is total contrast between Norway and Britain. What is it about Norway that impresses you? I think it's a, it's, it's a country that believes that High taxation equals civilization. In other words, if you don't invest in public services, education, health, welfare, and so on, then you have a selfish society which is only concerned with every person for themselves. So the Norwegians, as with their massive universal fund available for uh, an investment for every citizen, know how to commit to a public good and you know that's the language and it's right and, and when you wander the streets of the towns of Norway you don't see poverty you don't see any homelessness and you see very little disability on the streets in total contrast to, to Britain I think there's also a kind of beautiful balance in Norway between the people and their precious environment it's inseparable. Their health, their health and welfare and optimism is inseparable from the fjords and the mountains and the rivers and the waterfalls and indeed the tunnels. You know, 
And there's enough tunnels in Norway for everybody to have one. Did you travel widely while you were there? No, not this time. Uh, I mean, I have driven from the south of Norway to the Arctic Circle before, so I have a reasonable, reasonable uh, picture of um, what that dramatically beautiful country uh, looks like. And um, the service is uh, first rate. There's a sense of what a, a sense of coherence, a sense of not nationalism at all, because what's impressive about Norway is that in peace negotiations around the world, the Norwegians punch miles above their weight. They regard the responsibility to promote peace as an essential feature of their foreign policies. We're more concerned about buying nuclear submarines. Yeah, a, a great deal of your your work life was to do with education. What do you find out about the education system there, and particularly the university system? Well, it's, I mean, it's universal for a start. I remember when my wife first came to, to Britain, she, she couldn't get the, over the idea that there was, there was such a thing as private schools. Why would education be private, she wanted to know. Why would water be privatised? So there's a sort of healthy scepticism in in Norway about privatization and I think that shows in the in the commitment to public school teaching. I mean school teachers are well paid, they're regarded as people of significant uh, status. Again, a bit a bit like Finland, uh, but again in somewhat contrast to Australia and and um, and Britain. And the health system? It's Universal health insurance, uh, as 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 we have here. I mean, the the saving grace of Australia is is Medicare, in my judgment, in terms of a civilization. So the Norwegians also believe that nobody should be financially penalised for being sick. But you're not meant to be trying to make money in the marketplace by with with health services. Of course, there are private services you can pay for extras, but by and large. The, the standard in the public system is, is second to none. Well, they're all the positives, but I have read that there are a few negatives. Um, discrimination against Roma and migrant groups remains a problem. And well, that's, that's true. That's true. Look, when I first went to Norway, everybody seemed to have blue eyes and blonde hair. And now it's much more cosmopolitan and... Um, the Norwegians have a policy of dispersal, uh, dispersal, dispersal of the new arrivals. You can't just all live in, in um, Oslo or Bergen. You know, they <laughs> once met groups of Somalis up near Tromsø, which is in the Arctic Circle. So, yeah, look, of course there's discrimination. I don't think it's, huh, I don't think it's as bad as it is next door in Sweden. But um, look, it's not. I sometimes say Norway is as is about as utopian as you can get, and there's lots of things that um, need to be addressed. But by and large, they behave like international citizens. That's what I like about it. Do you believe that climate change has touched Norway? Oh yes. Oh yeah. They know. They know that because the. Um, the cold, the cold winters, which were always a feature 
of life there no longer exist. And um, the long, hot summers and the, and the Gulf Stream being a couple of degrees hotter than it was, because the Gulf Stream flows right up the Oslo Fjord, those are all signs of um, climate change. And this must affect the wildlife? Yeah, I, I'm not a great authority on that. I mean, I've, I've looked at the Sami up in the, the herds of Sami, who there's a clash there between the, the, the Sami's herds of, um, of deer, of reindeer. That clashes with the interest in development. You've got the usual clash between the protection of indigenous people's lifestyle and the desire to drill for oil. That uh, the, the, the tug of war between trade or human rights exists in Norway as, as in any country. And how are the indigenous people getting on? Well, look, they've got, they have self-government. I've been to their parliament. There's a lot needs to be done. I'm not sure, I can't recall a... Um, figures about the gap between the, the life expectancy of the indigenous people of the north and of the people who live in the south, the Norwegians who live in the south. But the fact that there's a, the self-governing parliament is impressive. I mean, in other words, they've had the equivalent of the voice for, for 30 or 40 years. Well, let's tackle Britain in 2023. What did you find? Oh dear, well the tears are slightly rolling down my face. Well there's a complete contrast, almost a mismatch between the stunning scenery in the summertime, particularly in the in the in the southwest, the wet in the west country, and the economic and social policies of thirteen years of um, of Tory rule. So the inequality is uh, has grown apace. The homelessness is a problem. The mental illness is a problem. If you sit in town squares, you watch people shoveling, shuffling by on their, with their walkers and their sticks and so on. It looks Dickensian. The, the fact that they, they had 13 years of austerity, um, that, that the consequences of that are the, the increasing poverty. And plus, of course, the most criminal and stupid decision the British ever made, which was to vote for Brexit to leave the European Union. That The consequences of that are, are now becoming very obvious. And what are they? They cut themselves off from one of the largest markets, trading markets in the world. They made it incredibly difficult to travel across to the to the continent, even for school kids on holiday, because the, the bureaucracy associated with the new Britain, Brexit re-erected barriers. The other obvious consequence is that the people who, who came from Europe to do crucial work in um, agriculture, in care of the elderly, in the building industry, are no longer there. Poles, Latvians, Lithuanians, Estonians, there was a deeply racist element in the decision to vote for Brexit. Uh, they didn't want foreign people arriving to take our people's jobs. Well, now, of course, there's a desperate shortage of labour. 
Is the Labor Party in Britain a viable alternative? Well, it, it has to be. Otherwise, everybody's going to sink into the North Sea. Starmer, it has to be. It has to be an alternative for the next 20 years. It's, there has to be a story and a vision about a different kind of country, about how do we live together in a global warming world, in a world where violence seems to be the centerpiece of domestic and foreign policies, where cruelty to asylum seekers and refugees is a priority topic for discussion every day in Britain. So the Labour Party under Starmer and, and Co, they have to be different. I mean, the trouble is they they will be given a poison chalice, a country that's on its knees economically. I think the, the issue, a bit like here, it's about learning to craft and implement a different way of living together. And um, that's the uncritical reliance on capitalism has to end. We have to be able to talk about the fellowship associated with socialism. Uh, we have to be able to talk about privatization being uh, an alienating policy. We have to be able to talk about the violent consequences of capitalism. The politicians, the, even the Labour politicians, are pretty frightened to do that because 75% of the media is still owned by the poisonous Mr Murdoch. If they were to dare to use the language which I've just used in the past 60 seconds, then um, we would have a kind of reds under the bed scare generated by the Daily Telegraph, the Daily Mail and the tabloids. But do the people talk about these issues, not the politicians, but the people? Well, no, not really. I mean, they have because a bit like here, they, they take their cues from whatever the headline is in the newspaper so that when that when that submersible sank with the five people on board when they were trying to look for the titanic that was about a month ago for for days and days that was the only topic of conversation that dominated the news media and dominated people's alleged interests but there's some hope i mean the 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 tories were wiped out in in one constituency recently where there was a 20,000 previous conservative majority, and the same happened with the, the Liberal Democrats winning a, 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 a by-election. So there's, there's hope. But from, for my money, it's, it's not much different from here. You have to tell a different story about who we are, what we believe in, where we want to be in five years' time, ten years' time. And you know, philosopher friend of Mine used to say there was only one question to answer. What's it all about then? What's the purpose of, of life on earth? Well, I asked you a question before about the education system in Norway. What did you find in Britain? In Britain? Well, unfortunately, it's uh, privilege and the purchase of privilege is still a dominant feature of the structure of, of education and the support for the, the power and influence of prestigious so-called public schools, which are in fact private, is still a feature of, of, of British life. Therefore, a feature of social inequality, a reluctance to um, be enthusiastic about the funding and support for 
public schools, in other words, for all the kids in all the um, poorer districts of Britain. I mean, in answer to your question about education, of course, the answer has to be that the consequences are regional. You can go to parts of uh, the east end of London and um, Glasgow and Birmingham where the conditions are not very encouraging. You could go to private schools where the gladioli look happy and the lacrosse courts are well-groomed. <laughs> so, in other words, inequality rules. And there's a sort of philosophical conundrum, Jan, in the, in the sense that um, John Kenneth Galbraith, the wonderful economist, said that economists have never found the moral justification for selfishness. And it's that commitment to selfishness, which unfortunately still is still part of the DNA of British education. And what about the National Health Service? Is that going to survive? Well, yes, it will survive because it's when people talk about their identity in Britain, I would guess that the major thing that comes to mind of just about everybody is the NHS. And so although it's been terribly underfunded, the attempt to privatise parts of it has been disastrous. The problems of overworked young doctors and a shortage of nurses and a shortage of cleaners and a shortage of porters all mostly flow from Brexit. So there has to be a massive reinvestment in the NHS. That's not just in hospitals. It's, it's a bit like here. It has to be in services that promote good health. So addressing mental health, addressing obesity, it's services uh, the, the NHS has to be able to deal with services over and beyond care in hospitals. You mentioned obesity there. Is the, the diet of British people improved at all? Well, no, because um, fast food, processed food, what do you call them, sweet drinks, soft drinks with plastered with sugar are... Um, <laughs> Or everywhere, and um, that's good health, encouragement of fellowship, encouragement of interdependence. You can hear the language I'm trying to use to depict what the future, or the, the the values that the future should rest on. What about the issues of Scotland, Wales, maybe Ireland leaving Britain, the devolution movement? Well, that's true. Look, there's a mass. I met. Yeah, I met young doctors who were dissatisfied with the conditions in which they worked. And they, I met a group who got together and they're planning to arrive on the Gold Coast of Australia early next year because they, they understand that the working conditions and the support is far better in Australia than in, than in, than in Britain. I mean, that's a problem. I mean, in a way, the world... The, the equality inequality issue is worldwide. Australia must be desperately looking for doctors from countries like India to come and provide services in, in our regions. There's a kind of poaching going on of, of um, medical personnel from developing countries where they are most needed. What I meant with that question was, uh, is there still talk about Scotland and Wales and maybe Ireland leaving the British 
Empire, what it used to be. Oh, the I see. Empire. I'm sorry, I missed that. Yeah. Look, yeah, the breakup of the British Isles is always there. The it, it, it looked a few years ago as though Scotland would vote for independence. It doesn't look like that now. I think the major issue is not in the immediate future. It's about ceasing the domination of Westminster, ceasing the, the notion that most of the key decisions are made there. I mean, if you watch Prime Minister's question time in the House of Commons, you've got rows and rows of the Tory benches behaving really as, as though... Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland are of, of, are of little importance. So the issue is, is, is about devolution before any notion of independence. I mean, in, in my judgment, it all depends on how we cope with climate change. Because the great leveller for everybody on, on the face of the earth is climate change. I mean, if, if there is a, a great fire of London tomorrow, people might start to wake up uh, or the politicians might start to wake up. So there will be bigger issues to address if human existence on this precious planet is to survive. I'll put it that explicitly. We finally, the issue is Murdoch's Sky News and you also like to talk about the untruths on The Voice. Well, this is a disgrace. You know, I was a social worker trained in the Maudsley Clinic and so on. I see these angry people like the, the two, Mrs. Price and Thorpe and Warren Mundine and Peter Dutton, heaven forbid, and they're full of anger about the voice. And, but for me, the anger is about their past. The anger is about why they are not centre stage, why the world does not revolve around them. Unfortunately, the casualty is becoming the voice. And the poisonous influence of Sky News and the Rupert Murdoch-backed newspapers who seem to accept that telling lies in the tradition of Donald Trump is a feature of modern life. And um, it's possible that the voice will become a casualty of that process. And there's, there's a bit of me thinks that if if we'd been asked to vote on The Voice six months ago, it would have passed. But now it's been given an opportunity for, for all the people who are racist, frankly, racist, intolerant. I mean, how dare they say that this is going to divide the nation when, from the, from the perspective of indigenous people, they've been the very, very poor, ignored relations for centuries. So how dare... The, the Duttons and the Warren Mundines take that, uh, make those arguments. It's very disappointing. I mean, I think if, if the voice goes down, it will be disappointing for, for Australia. I think it will affect our reputation internationally and it will really postpone more uh, enthusiastic policies for, the, for Indigenous people for, for generations. Good to be home. Yeah, look, yes, yes, it is. Look, um, <laughs> there are too many. I mean, I think I've had to address three major issues at public meetings in the, in the three days that I've been home. One was about the stupidity of buying nuclear submarines. The second is the cruelty associated with keeping 
Julian Assange still in prison. And the third issue is about the, um, the pogroms against the Palestinians in the Middle East, where our, our politicians, for the most part, few exceptions in Canberra, just turn a blind eye to it and don't dare to say anything. So um, in order to address those issues, yes, I suppose I'm glad to be home. <laughs> Thank you so much, Stuart. Okay, okay, Dan, thanks for the interview. And I've been speaking with Emeritus Professor Stuart Grace from Sydney University. He's also many other things. He's an author. He's a human rights activist. He was the founder of the Sydney Peace Foundation and a tireless worker for Julian Assange. And even subtropical rainforests that don't usually burn were actually on fire. We have the obligation to care for country. So much forest burnt that around 3 billion animals are either killed or displaced. The more we push back against the colonial apparatus, the more positive change we can have in terms of addressing climate change. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. The South Australia government says that the Commonwealth needs to go back to the drawing board with plans for a nuclear waste dump and put all options on the table. This is in the context of a decision by the Federal Court to set aside a decision to build the dump on South Australia's Air Peninsula near the town of Kimba. I'm speaking with Dr Margie Beavis, representing the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Now, Margie, I'd like you to clean up two issues before we look at the successful campaign against the dump near Kimba. This proposed dump was, as we're told, for low-level nuclear waste, mostly associated with the production of nuclear medicine. What is nuclear medicine? Two framings for this. The first, I'll explain nuclear medicine, but then I'll talk about how dishonest the government has been about all this. Nuclear medicine is not radiotherapy. Nuclear medicine is not chemotherapy. Nuclear medicine is a small area of medicine where people use radioactive material. The commonest use of it is actually for heart tests, for testing people who need a particular type of scan to judge heart function. It is, nuclear medicine is sometimes used to treat some types of cancer, but it's certainly one of the um, much lesser used strategies. And usually with nuclear medicine, what people do is they take some blood from the patient they then label it, in other words, they stick some very short-acting radioactive material onto that blood and then they re-inject it. And then they look, they use it for what we call medical imaging. So then they look using a scanner to see where that particular blood has gone. What makes me, what has been very disturbing about this process is from the word go, the government has pushed nuclear medicine as the reason for this dump. And that is not the case in terms of Australian nuclear medicine 
nuclear medicine, if you inject some radioactive material into a person, it's, as I said, it's got a very short half-life. What that means, it's like a battery that goes flat very quickly, so it loses its radioactivity really quickly. And so what they do in the hospitals, and this is all over Australia where they do do nuclear medicine, is they put the, the waste, so the syringes and the rubber gloves and things, into, and I kid you not, literally a lead-lined rubbish bin. So they put a lead lining on a rubbish bin. They put that stuff into that bin. They leave it for between a month and three months. And then it's, the batteries run so flat, there's so little radioactivity left that it can go into the normal rubbish tip. It doesn't need any further special handling. So in terms of treating patients with nuclear medicine, the hospitals, the vast majority of this waste ends up being stored for a little while in a headline rubbish bin and then goes to a normal rubbish tip. The arguments around nuclear medicine producing waste are in the production of nuclear medicine. And Australia, ANSTO, shamefully, has ramped up a large export business. So Australia needs about 1% of the world's nuclear isotopes. ANSTO's ramped up a business that is likely to take over. They want it, they're aiming for 25 to 30% of the world's markets. So they're trying to sell this stuff. And in doing so, we get left with the waste. They are replacing Canada, who used to have a reactor that did this export business. But the Canadians, for a number of reasons, did not replace that reactor for the export business. And one of them was a large amount of nuclear waste it was leaving. So it's a complicated story as to where the medicine, where the waste comes from, but there is a lot of liquid waste being accumulated in Lucas Heights from an export business that in fact probably loses money once you actually factor in the fact that you have to dispose of this intermediate level waste. Like they're selling all this stuff saying it's going to make money, but they're not factoring in the fact that they have to get rid of it somehow. So it's a complicated story and even more complicated is the fact that it's a bit like renewables and coal, but if you go back 20 years, there is, a, there is a process that will make a lot of these radioisotopes, the vast majority of these isotopes, that is much, much cleaner, and that's gone through a lot of regulatory processes in Canada and is still coming together. But the Australia should be really doing research into copying the Canadians and working out how to make these nuclear medicine much, much cleaner. So it's not happening yet, but it's, there's much, much cleaner ways to do it down the track. But you, that's a complicated story. I can imagine. Now, you've, you've used two terms there. You've used low-level waste and you've used intermediate waste. Can you just explain a little bit more about the difference? Certainly. It's another piece of dishonesty on the government. Firstly, they use nuclear medicine. I mean, the nuclear medicine argument makes me so... It's so dishonest. The minister's gone on television in South Australia and said, if we don't have this dump, nuclear medicine in Australia will stop. Well, that's actually completely false. With regard to intermediate level waste and low level waste, a lot of journalists and some of the government materials say that this facility in Kimber in South Australia is going to be for low level waste. Well, no. In fact, there's two facilities proposed for Kimber. One is the low-level waste that, as I said, the battery radioactivity on that runs out after about 300 years. So what they're doing with that is appropriately storing it, then proposing to encase it in concrete, make it waterproof and seal it at just below ground level. For the low-level waste, which is, as I said, runs out of radioactivity in 300 years, 
that's probably consistent with what is best practice around the world. What's really dishonest is the handling of the intermediate level waste, which stays radioactive for over 10,000 years. Uh, now, our big numbers are hard, but if your listeners want to imagine, the pharaohs built their pyramids 5,000 years ago. So we're going back twice the length of time from now back to the pharaohs for this waste to be kept out of the water supply, out of any contamination, out of the food chain, and to pretend that putting it in a temporary store, and by temporary they say up to 100 years, which is just mind-boggling, on a facility that's located on a floodplain and does get, it's a seismically active part, of, it's one of the most seismically active parts of Australia, is really just kicking the can down the road. If they, what we actually need is an inquiry into how to properly deal with this intermediate level waste. And the, the process has been just so badly done, but the worst, I mean, apart from dishonesty on a number of levels, the treatment of the Bangala people and the exclusion of them from the original survey of the community about having the, the community at Kimber about having the waste dump to completely exclude the traditional owners was incredibly disappointing but also really hypocritical for a government that's pushing for the voice. I mean, this is completely the opposite. Like, you can have the voice, but when it actually is putting a radioactive waste dump on your traditional lands, you have no say. And that, that it's very good news that a court has, has thrown out that decision about a week ago. Can I just take you back to that dishonesty, the dishonesty about the medical waste? Why haven't mm. the medical fraternity and the pharmaceutical industry spoken up about this dishonesty? It's a very good question. At the Medical Association for Edge of War, we've been saying, saying what we can. I think... ANSTO has been very savvy. They took some of the senior people in the radiology and nuclear medicine field on a tour of Lucas Heights and showed them all the whiz-bang technology there. And they, you know, what a wonderful facility this was. So they've done a lot of marketing to senior people in the College of Radiology, I'm not using the right terminology, but basically the, the, the people who use nuclear medicine. And so they are glad to have the nuclear medicine. They're not going to get political about how it's made or whether there's an export industry or where the waste goes. ANSTO has been quite skillful in manipulating the most qualified group of specialists to just be supportive of the production of nuclear medicine. And the rest of the nuclear, of the medical profession, I've certainly when they were proposing to put in the Southern Flinders Ranges, the GP there was very outspoken. But the rest of the medical profession would sort of defer to the specialists that are involved pretty much. But there are certainly other doctors in MAPW, Medical Association Prevention of War, who've spoken up. And we do what we can. But it is, it is in some ways sort of like falling between the cracks in that yeah, I'm not trying to excuse this, but yeah, I think once Ansto had got the College of Radiologists 
from medical in, nuclear medicine specialists. I, I can't give you the precise name of the college. And also they they sweet talked the AMA. And the AMA I have met with in South Australia, and they were certainly dismayed about what was happening with the nuclear waste dump. But they haven't come out with any public statement. I'm sure you realise, Margie, that when I said the medical profession, I wasn't including MAPW because you're doing fine work. <laughs> we do our best. <laughs> now, as you said, they're trying for Kimba, but they've been trying for others as well. The Flinders Rangers, what happened when they tried to push one in that area or push around that area? Well, this is a really, I mean, it's part of the whole dishonesty with the Southern Flinders Rangers they used a 50-kilometre radius for the survey. So they asked everybody within a 50-kilometre radius of the dump whether they wanted it or not, and asked the community. And the community resoundingly said, no, we do not want this dump. When it came to doing the same thing for Kimber, they were much more cunning. Instead of doing a 50-kilometre radius, which would have included a lot of the farmers who are opposed to this waste facility, Instead of doing a 50-kilometre radius, no, they just used the town boundaries. Now, the town boundaries really largely include the businesses that will benefit from the increased business that comes from building a waste facility. And so they were much more likely to get a positive outcome, which they did. It was, only, it was not a resounding result, but I think it was something like 61% but or 62%. What was shameful in that process is that were farmers that were closer to the dump than the township and whose product would be affected reputationally by having a waste dump so close to them and they were not able to vote because of the way the vote was set up. So the, the manipulation of the community has continued. I mean, this is not a politically naive process. They've, there's been lots of a lot of money spent in trying to persuade this community to accept a waste facility and a lot of it's been quite um, misleading or outright dishonest. Where were the Indigenous peoples in this? The traditional owners do not live at Kimber, but they were completely excluded from the survey. And so they, not surprisingly, took the government to court and said, you cannot put this. We are. They, they were very sensible in that they got an independently commissioned survey of the Bangala people. So they got they sent out a survey that was independently run and that was a unanimous vote of no, they did not want this nuclear waste on their traditional lands. So then they have, and it's not been an easy process for them, taken the government to court and I think the government spent about $13 million on the court process. The Bangala had to come up with about half a million dollars, but still that's a huge amount of money for a, a, a small group and it was wonderful. It was sort of a David versus Goliath court case and they this court case came down saying that there'd been, I think that said, apprehended decision-making and bias in the decision-making by the minister and so the, the site was quashed, was the nice word, nice satisfying word, to have the site selection quashed. We now have to wait and see whether the government chooses to appeal this decision and that may yet happen, which is it's so incredibly hypocritical given... This government supports a voice for Aboriginal people. And it's also possible they may choose another site around Kimber. Anyway, who knows what the future holds? I mean, it was a major, was a big win and tremendous effort on the part of the Bangala people and all the anti-nuclear activists who have supported them. But, but really, hats off to everybody. But we aren't finished yet.
and of course a lot of local people as well. Yes, local the local farmers in you know no nuclear waste on farmland in Kimber. There is if your listeners want to um, help with this process, there is a change.org petition. Um, I'm just getting the title up on my screen just a moment, and people can go to the change.org website, which is called No Nuclear Waste Dump on Our Country, Bangala. So I'll say that again. If you do change.org and go to No Nuclear Waste Dump on Our Country, Bangala, and that shows now that's got over 14,000 signatures, but the more signatures we can get, the more the government will be less likely to appeal. The other thing people can do is just briefly email Anthony Albanese, Penny Wong, Ed Husick, Madeleine King. Just send them a quick email to say, please do not appeal the Bargala decision. Please have an independent inquiry into how to deal with Australia's nuclear waste because they keep going. But this is... There's been multiple processes over the last 30 or 40 years and they keep doing it so badly that it doesn't go ahead. They need to stop, look at what's happening, look at how much waste is being made, look at it's really time to stop and do it properly. You said government land. Where does land rights fit into this? Well, that's a very good question. The nuclear submarines, which are a whole other nuclear waste nightmare, we're going to get these second-hand submarines from America and then we're going to keep the nuclear waste that is with these submarines and that's high-level waste that's even longer-lived than the intermediate-level waste. They're talking about putting that on defence land, but defence land and land that has traditional owners on it often overlap. So where does the government land quote unquote exist and if they're going to do this they need to really talk long and sincerely and discuss with the affected communities so that they can see that there's the trade-offs for putting this material on their land there are benefits that are worth that and so far they haven't succeeded. You've sat down with the local people near the dump site or at Kimber when was that and what was achieved with those meetings or that meeting? Um, That was all pre-COVID, which feels like a generation ago, well pre-COVID. Basically, those meetings were about, both in the Flinders Rangers and at Kimber, about putting the nuclear medicine side of the story so that people understood that they were being gaslighted, really, about nuclear medicine and that the waste facility wasn't going to, wasn't urgent, it isn't going to stop nuclear medicine production and that nuclear medicine in people was not the reason why we needed this waste facility that if, if the ANSTO has behaved not has not acted in good faith at almost any point in this process and that's really for a government for it's, it's not a government organization but for a government for an organization that is very heavily subsidized by the government that's a disgrace what were the meetings like with the local people oh very friendly although what was really sad was that because in the country you have to get along with people, a lot of people just weren't talking about it. They wouldn't discuss it because they didn't want to distress their neighbours. So they, they wanted they wanted to be able to get along. So it, it sort of put up, it made divisions in the community that had been previously been very united, which is very sad. I think a lot of the community members were incredibly sad at how much division had come out of this and what damage it had done to what had previously been a really close-knit community. And you can imagine the stress on the families in the area, the Aboriginal families, of going to court 
fighting this for how many years? Oh, I, I'm guessing I'd say two, but more. I mean, we've been fighting the whole thing for about, I don't know, it feels like a decade, but it's probably about seven years. I think what was saddest out of some of those meetings with the community was that people said, you know, their kids would be more likely to move away from the township if they had a nuclear waste dump. But, you know, who would want to bring your kids up close to a nuclear waste dump? It's it it was just it was very sad to see the division that had come into the community with this, with this government decision to to locate it there. And I'd imagine this would happen with the, the local farmers as well with their green produce. The local farmers were certainly very concerned about what the reputational impacts would be for what their grain, which was previously sort of had a good clean and green reputation. They were certainly very concerned about what this would do to their reputation and therefore their grain prices. Well, let's look at the hypothetical. If this did go ahead or had gone ahead, where was the material coming from and how was it going to get to that area near Kimber? Okay, one of the other dishonest things that the government said was that this was urgent because there was nuclear waste at over 100 sites around the country. Most of this waste, the vast majority of this waste, is coming from ANSTO at Luke Lucas Heights reactor, and that's the intermediate level waste. And then there's a whole lot of waste at Woomera in 44 gallon drums. That's low level waste. That is the vast majority of it. There is a very, very tiny volume that has been stored in hospitals and in science laboratories around the country and it's a bit like the waste from the nuclear medicine. This stuff has been, for instance, this radium in hospitals that's been safely stored in hospitals since the 1960s and 70s. And there is no urgency to move this stuff. The real, the, the real urgency is for the government to start planning for a proper world's best practice deep geological facility if that's what comes out of the inquiry. It's probably the most likely thing. And that can take 30 or 40 years to plan and build. And Finland has taken 30 or 40 years to plan their nuclear waste facility, but it's still not online yet. I mean, nobody around the world has a successful nuclear waste facility for high level waste. And that's what we are going to get with the submarines. And the government is sort of just hoping to dump the intermediate level waste onto a community for 100 years while they think about it. It's not, it's not good enough. They shouldn't be moving this stuff twice. They should. With radioactive waste, the accidents can happen on site, but they also can happen when the waste is being transferred. And with any exposures, the, the principle is to the least risk possible. And the government was not looking at that, not paying attention to the sort of proper practice in handling this very highly toxic radioactive waste. And as you've pointed out a couple of times about the dishonesty of both this government and previous governments, the nuclear industry has a record of dishonesty as well. Oh my goodness, the, the pro-nuclear power industry in Australia is so, it's got a real lease of life now that we're getting nuclear-powered submarines. But if they really want to look at a real-world example of how stupid nuclear power is, it's, 
it's stupid on so many levels, but if you're just looking at the money side of things, it's way more expensive than renewables with storage. And in the UK, nuclear power since 2010 has gone from, I mean, nuclear power is falling. It's now 12.5% of the UK power. They're trying to get money to build a new nuclear reactor and nobody, nobody with any sense is putting up money. They've got what's called a capital strike where they can't raise the money to do nuclear power because it just makes no sense. It's, it's, it's too expensive. Nobody wants it. And interestingly, in, in the UK, since 2010, the amount of renewables, so in the last 13 years, the amount of renewables has gone from 6% to 48%. And renewables are much cheaper. They're also much cleaner. They're much safer. They don't lead to nuclear waste issues. For Australia, it's it's ridiculous. They're too slow. It would take 20 years to get a nuclear reactor up and running. And these small modular reactors that everybody's talking about are even more expensive to run than a large reactor. I mean, it's it's a nonsense to say these small modular reactors are what Australia needs because unless you have billions and billions and billions of dollars subsidies from our taxpayer dollars, there is no way a nuclear reactor would ever be built. No, no sensible investor would put money into them. Well, just finally, Margie, this decision by the federal court, I can imagine the, the nuclear industry is seeing this as a setback, but they're determined to press ahead. And that means there's more work for people like you and me. Absolutely. Um, I think the nuclear industry is delighted by the AUKUS subs decision and is going to use that to lever as much as they can. I think as far as nuclear reactors go, I think one of the really wonderful things is Australians are sensible enough to know that they don't want a nuclear reactor anywhere near their house. There's good evidence that there's increases in childhood leukaemia if you live within five kilometres of a nuclear reactor. And when I think it was John Howard started talking about nuclear reactors, the opposition leader at the time sort of laughed and said, OK, tell me which electorates it's going to go in, because as soon as you say to an electorate, you're getting a nuclear reactor, I think it's Guineas to Gooseberries, the government representative would, would lose his seat. So I think nuclear power, I'm hopeful, because it's so expensive, because it's so unpopular, because it's so slow, I'm hopeful that we will not get nuclear power. But what I do think we really need to be careful about is nuclear subs being the thin end of the wedge for an international waste dump, because nobody globally has solved this problem. And if they think they can get their waste and dump it in Australia, that's a nice solution. So I think whilst I'm mildly optimistic that the nuclear power industry won't get off the ground, I am very cautious about the fact that the nuclear waste issue is going to just keep going and going and we could well end up handling, ending up with an awful lot of it. Hopefully not. Okay, thank you very much, Margie. Um, yeah, if people can email email your email, Albo, Wong, Husick and King, just a quick email saying don't appeal the nuclear waste dumps decision and do time for an independent inquiry. That'd be fabulous. And sign the petition, no nuclear waste dump on our country, Bangala. Thanks a lot, Jan. And Dr. Margie Beavis is Vice President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.